Over the last few months, most of us have watched the unrest and protests in Iran with some concern. Concern for the people who are out there in the streets risking their lives to claim just some of the freedoms that we take for granted here in New Zealand. These protests, this movement, has been essentially formed post the murder of Masa Amani. She was a young 22-year-old woman uh, who died at the hands of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, apparently for inappropriately wearing a hijab. What this has done, what her death has done, is unleashed decades of repressed anger and the enforced oppression of the Iranian current government on its citizenry. We would, uh, in New Zealand, not tolerate any of the sort of repression uh, that is currently the grist for the mill for anyone who wants to live in Iran. Some are calling the unrest a counter-revolution, and there is a huge response to it from the government with hundreds of deaths and now extrajudicial executions as well. In New Zealand, uh, we have uh, brought in limited sanctions, travel sanctions, against some of the members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard and the government. It simply means that they cannot travel to New Zealand. But we have not declared the Islamic Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organisation. We should have. Lots of other countries throughout the world have, uh, and it shouldn't be something that we drag our heels on. Uh, what we know is that that organisation has international reach. They have huge funding and great capacity, and they do go into other countries and harass people who have a view of how the government should operate in Iran counter to what is currently happening. Today, my guests are two people who came from Iran, uh, one in 2004, one in 2010, Samira Tahavi and Masa Marx. Uh, welcome to the back room of politics. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for having us. You're Thank welcome, you. Samira. Yeah. And so tell me, uh, what brought you both to New Zealand? I came to New Zealand in 2004 as an international student to do my master's and um, ended up working here and staying and then starting a family. Wonderful. So you're a, a, uh, an Iranian New Zealand citizen? Yes, I am. And I'm married to a wonderful Cantabrian. Yeah, well, that's uh, just an absolute bonus for you. <laughs> um, Samira? I came here in 2010. Uh, I got accepted into Auckland University to do my master's degree in public law. And I pretty much uh, was forced out of Iran by my father because it was very political. I kept getting myself into trouble. And I was given an ultimatum that I would either stop practicing law as a criminal lawyer, as a 22-year-old criminal lawyer, or I would leave Iran. And I was pretty much forced out of Iran by my father for my safety. For, he did it because uh, he obviously loved you and didn't want to see you in uh, all sorts of trouble. But you did get into quite a bit of trouble at one stage. Oh, I did get into a lot of trouble back home in Iran because law school was a very political, it had a very political environment. And I was very vocal politically against uh, a lot of penalties that we had in Iran under the criminal act or criminal code, as they call it, such as a stoning, lashing, death penalty specifically. And I did witness at least 45 death penalty as a very, very young lawyer. And it was heavily affecting me. So we were arranging a lot of protests. I kept getting myself arrested. And um, at some stage, I was in an unknown place for a long time. I also got myself lashed, unfortunately. And uh, Just to ex explain what that actually means, that uh, 
you, well, were, you were sentenced to quite a significant number of lapses. That's right. It was 80. And however, I apparently I passed out after 30 lashes because it was incredibly painful, which probably was a blessing that I passed out and they stopped at that point. And I was I was sick for a very long time after that. That so, didn't so, to stop quantify, me. To quantify that pain factor, how long were you in? It seems weird to me, but they give mm. you the lash uh, and then send you to a hospital. Send you home. Yeah, you get your you get your sentence and you get sent home. And how long were you recovering? Uh, you can say you will recover for the rest of your life. Of course. Yes, but the recovery period was, was a few months. The scars, of course, will be there forever. Uh, it was not, it, 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 was, it was a very strange experience, I must say, but that didn't really stop us from not going back to what we were doing. It, I always kind of, I don't have any children, but I always say it's like giving birth. You know, you say, I won't do it again. And then, you know, two years later, you're back, you're back at it. And it's, it was like that. It didn't stop us from doing what we wanted to do. But eventually you had to leave. I had to leave because it was really causing my parents a lot of grief. And my dad said that I cannot take you home in a body bag, pretty much. Right. Because we lost my aunt, very young aunt, 27 years old. Uh, around the revolution time, she was shot. She was executed as part of a kind of, we, we, we would call it a massacre. And there were 5,000 political prisoners. They were shot in one day. Uh, and they always knew that would happen eventually to one of us if we carry on. So my father really couldn't go through that again. So right. I really did leave because of him. Master, for the first part of your life, you were entirely under the um, regime that currently operates. What was that like living day to day with the restrictions that come on people's lives? As a young person, it was very confusing because I came from a very liberal family and what was going on at home was very different to what was allowed in public. So what, when you say liberal, what does that So for in example, in my family, there were, we were allowed to dance. We didn't have to cover. Uh, we adults could um, drink alcohol. Um, there was mixing of men and women and then he and then as soon as we would go to school from the age of seven i had to cover my hair mm. i had to not speak to any men or boys schools were single sex from um that you know six years old and over time as i grew up and i could see you know i was not allowed to ride a bicycle in public i was not around allowed again to dance to sing so there were a lot of limitations and also the studying of um, Islamic studies was um, compulsory and it had a massive um, impact on whether you would get into university if you didn't have good grades in Islamic studies. So had to study something that I believe in, had to not speak up at times. I did at high school a lot so I got expelled a number of times for being too outspoken. So I didn't get to similar troubles as Sammy because I, I had had an ultimatum from my father as well that after mm. being um, held one night in custody for act, being active in an election, nothing happened to me thankfully, he said I, I will not come back and pick you up, which was his style of basically saying stop. So I stopped and then um, yeah, I was 21, I, one day I got stopped for not covering my hair properly as I was driving. And um, I and I got called a lot of awful names mm. for that. And I drove to my dad's office and I said, I want to leave. And he said, pick a country, wherever you want to go. I'll support that. And that was the beginning of basically me leaving Iran 
18 years ago. Similar background, Samira? Oh yeah, absolutely. And my very liberal family as well. You know, we would drink, we would, parents were drinking, lots of parties. Just, just pick that up. So yeah. you've both said that you came from liberal families, mm. but um, that 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 implies that um, there was something very unusual about the the, yeah. the way in which your family operated. Yeah. But compared to New Zealand, what would that would that be all that different? I mean, the fam no. families here seem to be the things you're talking about they do mm -hmm. uh, all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Yes, and this is what my parents, for example, grew up doing. So when they were mm -hmm. our age, they could do all of that because um, before 1979 revolution, mm -hmm. where Iran turned from monarchy to a, as, you know, Islamic mm -hmm. rule started to rule the country, there was freedom, there was pubs and nightclubs and everything. So my mm -hmm. parents grew up living like that, and then they had to pretend that they didn't. Yeah. The same so, as my parents, yeah, the same as my parents. Kind of, I, I used to look at my mother's photos before the revolution, I just couldn't believe it. The way she was dressing up and she was even more stylish than we were at her at, they could go at to that the age. Yeah. Wear bikinis, yeah. where all of that was illegal for us when we were growing up. Yeah. Women were not allowed to go But to it was beach. very different, you know, and despite my father being quite liberal, he turned to be, he turned into a very conservative man at some stage because he was just so scared. For example, by 7.30 p.m. we had to be home. He would drive us everywhere. He wouldn't let us drive ourselves because he was always constantly worried about whether we would go back home or not. And I think those are the very reasons that he just couldn't couldn't have us so living you, in Iran. You both have families who are there at the moment. What, what, is, what was your family structure? You're obviously mother, father, mm. or what, what else? And siblings, so I've got siblings here now. Right. So after I left, um, a few years later, my brother and sister joined me and my parents have been coming and going. Right. Since these unrests, they have remained in New Zealand because it won't be safe for them to go back. Mm. But I've got a huge extended family I have asked to denounce me if anybody contacts them about me to say that we don't know her, she's insane, we don't talk to her because I don't want to put them at risk by my activities here in New Zealand and that's a real risk for them. For me, I've got my parents back in Iran, which I'm hoping to get here next year at some stage. Uh, my four of us, four siblings, I've got my brother in Australia, uh, my older sister who is a heart surgeon, she's here at the moment only until March. Uh, we are trying to convince her to stay, but she won't. She's the head of the biggest heart hospital in Iran, so her job is quite important to her, so she will go back. And the younger sister was also in New Zealand. Right. Yeah, but but my parents are back home, and that's a big worry for us. Yeah. So um, quite clearly, your families, when you were younger, were living under a high degree of uh, fear, sort of suppressing the way they really choose to live. How typical is that of uh, Iranian families, um, or, or is there a majority of the population that uh, do want to live under those sort of uh, conditions? Oh, certainly not. The majority don't want to live under the, under those conditions. I would say the majority want to live the way, you know, we live in New Zealand. And But they don't have a choice. One of the problems is, for example, even if you're drinking inside your house, we have a party inside, the, the morality police can simply come in without a search warrant. And we had the situation, one of the many, a few years ago, that there was this big wedding. The morality police was actually paid off 
by the father of the father of the bride. That was such a sad story. This was 10 years ago, and my parents were invited to that wedding because the father of the bride was one of the high-profile lawyers, and my father was a lawyer. They both got sick and they didn't go. So it was in the middle of nowhere. The morality police was paid off not to raid the wedding. Uh, the groom was from the States. He wasn't even Iranian. They had around 700 guests. Around 2 o'clock in the morning, they raided the wedding. They arrested every single guest, and they lashed half of the guests, including the bride. Not and immediately, but within a few weeks. And are they... Do they go before a court? What no, is there is no, there is no due process. There is no trial. There is no rule of law. So you're drinking. That's it. Right. So they breast test yeah. people if if they have been drinking alcohol, lashing. So what is the where is the intersection here between uh, the religion of Islam mm -hmm. and the application of uh, Islamic law, if you like, by the by the Ayatollah? I wouldn't say this is this is religion. I wouldn't say you know this this is the application of the Islamic law by the Ayatollah. As he they, sees it. Oh, absolutely. As interpreted by yeah. him to to suppress, suppress and um, and control the population. Mm -hmm. And you know the the best way they've been able to control the population has been by fear, putting mm -hmm. a lot of fear into this into people. And what's happened now is there's a generation that is not fearing them as much as my generation, for example. Yeah. This is not real Islam. It actually saddens me because we, we do have really good Muslims. And this is really saddens me that in a sense it's kind of affecting them as well. And people think this is about Muslim people. This is not. Muslim people are really nice people, very kind people, respectful. And they don't believe in the suppression at all. They do their own thing because they love it, because they enjoy it. They don't do it because they feel they have to do it. And they don't want other people to do it under duress. My parents' uh, parents, my grandparents, were Muslim and mm. practicing. Same and, as mine. And um, but they would be around as we did what we wanted to do and have parties and have mm. alcohol. And it was a freedom of choice. Anybody wanted to do what they wanted mm. to do, that was okay. And you know, there was no pressure to have to follow a certain way of living inside of our family. And that's what Iranians are fighting for—to have that freedom of choice. Mm. There are plenty of Muslims that are going to these uh, protests in Iran and across the world oh, yeah. with the hijab on and having their strong beliefs. And their view is that actually what these guys are doing, what the Iranian regime is doing, is turning a lot of people against Islam for mm. no good reason. Mm. So when you, you talk about the, or, or we hear talk of the um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard, what is that? Is that a, a formal military organization? Is it paramilitary? Um, is, is that the morality police? What's its structure and how does it um, operate throughout the country? The Islamic Revolutionary Guard was um, created during the war between Iran and Iraq after the Iranian Revolution. Their job, is, they have two mandates. One is to you know, ensure that the Islamic law prevails in Iran and it's, you know, it's well executed. So morality police is an arm of them that their job is to ensure Iranians follow Islamic rules. For example, they don't that people don't drink or people mm. cover their women cover their hair. Iran also has got a military that the army, which is responsible for keeping the borders safe, and the army was also involved in the Iran and Iraq war. Over the years, the control of Iranian oil and a lot of Iranian resources has been going to the 
Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corporations, which is why it's called the corporation, because it's got its hands in construction, in oil exportation, in pre pretty much many, many industries. Mm. And that, that's all controlled that's by the Ayatollah? Yeah. Yes. And the Iranian Supreme Leader, the Ayatollah, right. is the only person that chooses what the Revolutionary mm. Guard would do. Right. And they have branches of military, don't they, uh, as I understand it? Yes. Um, the Air Force, Army, effectively. Navy. Absolutely. Yeah. Force they've and got Navy. production of military weapons as mm. well, which is what they've been, you know, supplying to Russia. Russia. So how does uh, a country that has that kind of activity going on uh, progress the desire by those who are protesting for greater freedom? What, what's the clash point or the end point or the, the, the catalyst moment where the current regime might work out that actually their future is uh, not all that uh, secure? The, there is a hacking group called Black Reward mm -hmm. that have been hacking the sites and their internal comms of the Iranian regime over the last three months and they've released documentations and audio. So there's, um, there's been a new do, um, audio, audio of a meeting yeah. released of the IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, that they are very concerned about their inability mm. to, put, to put a lid on this. Basically, every time this has happened, and this is not the first unrest in Iran, they've been able to, um, to you know, make it go away pretty quickly. Within a couple of weeks, couple usually, of weeks. yeah. It's never, and what what there's what the leader of the group was saying was that you know our our forces are tired, they're losing their uh, motivation. We have to increase their pay. We have to send foods to their family and their homes to kind of keep them enticed to keep fighting. So I think they are definitely having, having trouble. Um, to go back to your question of... Well, essentially, what, what is it that would make the uh, regime start to change its tune a little bit and perhaps become a little bit more uh, liberal, if you want to use that Oh, term. they want. So, so there are liberals or reformists. Yeah. For eight years, Iran has a, had a reformist um, prime, uh, president. He has recently, he has been on the house arrest for the last 15 years. Yes. 15 and years? Yes. Because after his, his tenure was finished, Iran has become, has become led by more extremists. Mm -hmm. And he's recently come out a few days ago saying, you know, we should be reforming, we should be listening to people. They brought him out and the Supreme Leader has come out and said there is no reform, we mm. will not be changing anything. No. So I think the, the Islamic Republic has definitely worked, worked itself to a dead end. So, so if, if I'm listening to this, yes. uh, uh, or you know, because I don't know directly from the sort of on-ground experience that you've got, but if you've got the Supreme Leader uh, who is really just exercising his own interpretation of the Quran and uh, uh, in, in Islam, uh, and you've got the people who are wanting something quite different, uh, and he's out there with his, uh, you know, the, the guard, uh, the corporation, as you call mm -hmm. them, uh, as, as enforcers. Um, what, what is the, the long-term future for that type of regime? Given that, as you said before, there has been this unrest before, it's kind of been settled, but this time there's no sign that it's going to settle anytime soon. Correct. Yeah. It's very hard to say, but I think they will eventually break. That's our hope, because it's the first time that they have killed and killed and killed. 
they have arrested so many people the west is now watching they are reacting this is the first time we've had so much reaction from from the west and what about the people themselves who are in the in the uh, the guard part mm. of the corporation the frontline guys that are out there being asked to uh, you know effectively commit atrocities against mm. their fellow citizens and that's why they are having yeah. their numbers drop the that's numbers right of their revolutionary guard members that are not showing up to work because what's happening is they're now facing some of their own family members on the other side um, as protesters mm. so and and what's different this time is you've got this generation of 20 something year olds that did not see the iran iraq war that have been very well connected to the rest of the world who also see the members of the Iranian government and their family members living overseas spending Iranian money. And they go, this money belongs to us. The economy has never been so bad in Iran, for example, compared to 15, 20 years ago. So there are all these factors and they go, well, we have nothing to lose. Most of them do not have family, like they don't have children, they don't have many obligations. So they're, they're going all the way. And every time they kill someone, if I was in Iran, I would be scared that I would get killed. These guys go, oh, you killed one person? The entire family yeah, of that will person come out. is now coming out. Mm. And that's why it's become so much harder mm. for them to manage it because the fear has gone. It's almost like fear was contagious and now bravery has mm. become contagious. So in any of these things, there's a structure. Um, and yes, I told her at the top of the pyramid, but we, at what point is there uh, some other leader who calls the shots, who actually says, you you people go to here and you suppress this particular activity uh, any way you can? Is there, is there a structure like that that could break? There is the head of the Revolutionary Guard. Yeah. He's highly compromised, so I don't think he's going anywhere. But there mm. are people within the Revolutionary mm. Guard as mm. leaders of certain states within mm. Iran mm. that are having trouble you know, that they don't believe in this, they're, they're good Muslims, they yeah. don't think this is how God intended things to be, mm. you know, that you should beat a woman to death or, or rape, rape her in, them. in prison mm. just because she refuses to cover mm. her hair. And also, a lot of them have got children that are of the same age of the children mm. that are on the street. So a lot of these, you know, leaders of military have got their own children are now speaking up. Mm. Even some of their children overseas are coming out, speaking, denouncing their parents, their mm. father, and saying, my dad is you know, committing these crimes. I don't receive any money from him. I do not feel like I'm related. You know, I'm denouncing my family, basically. So there are lots of problems within their families, within their structure. One of the things that is happening at the moment, which is quite concerning, apart from all the detention and the killing and everything else that they are arresting young children like 15 year old or 16 year olds and they keep them in custody and unfortunately in the past two weeks a few of them who've been released they all committed suicide two days after they were released so only god knows what they have done to these kids that they simply couldn't carry on we think it was rape we think people got raped in front of them because that's one of the torture tactics that they do they rape people that are in the same room as you in front of you they did that to a 14 year old uh, boy and he said i'm not going to let you taking my sister in without me and they took the they took him in with his sister and raped his sister in front of him 
That was in the CNN. That was in the CNN as well. So, and again, yesterday morning we woke up to the news that a 16-year-old uh, who was released uh, from detention, you know, the question is why should he have been arrested in the first place as a 16-year-old? And then two days after he was released, he committed suicide. So his parents were posting all these videos about him dancing in the house three months ago and then now his funeral. So that was that was really, really sad. One thing about these guards, which uh, we have heard, especially from my friends who are all doctors, including my sister, they say that when they bring them to the hospital, for example, something happened to these revolutionary guards and they bring them to the hospital and they try to treat them because they have to, they're doctors. They all say they are on some sort of drugs. It's just not normal. So they must have given them something to be able to do what they're doing. Some of them are very, very young. And my sister says some of them actually are quite calm after we put them under observation after a few hours, but it's quite obvious they're just, they're just not normal when they come in. They must be on some sort of drugs and they're trying to find out what type of drugs actually they're giving them. Because I just can't see how can anybody go out and beat a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old to death. Mm. Yeah, it's something that's very hard for us to even begin to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jerry, what's interesting and what gives us hope is we have known about these brutalities for the last 40 years. Mm. We have known about mass murders and mass killings in prison. We have known about women being raped in Iranian prisons, children being executed, minors for crimes. So we've known about all of this and you know that's been part of the reason so many Iranians, you know, you've got over 10 million Iranians living abroad. But what's what's not nice, but what's encouraging is now the rest of the world mm. is speaking about it. Mm. The rest what, of the world the, knows about it. What's the population of Iran? 80 million inside 80 million. Iran and about and 8 to 10 million outside of Iran. Right. Yeah, which is why we see, you know, the level of um, I guess demonstrations outside of Iran is quite big as well, because for so many years we got told, if you don't like it, leave. 80 million is an enormous number of people to mm. have under the sort of strict controls that, that uh, you've experienced in the past. But they've scared them so much, you know, when you go yeah. for a protest and well, they start... I think start, that's the point yeah. I make, that, um, yeah. uh, the, the level of fear in people's lives must be just extraordinary. Yeah, like live, live ammunition. We used to protest outside university, and I remember they were, I think I've said that story to Massa, and they, I remember they were spraying people. We thought they were spraying us with water uh, until one of the students started saying, my eyes, my eyes, my eyes. They were spraying students with acid in order to, in order to send us home. And of course we went home, because none of us wanted to be sprayed with an acid at mm. the age of 18 or 19. So this is how they respond, and people are genuinely scared. But I really think the current generation, they just don't care. What, what is the basis of the Iranian economy? Oil. Oil. Mm. Exportation. Mm. Right. Yeah, it's their, I mean, based on the sanctions that have happened over mm. the years, it's, been, it's become less and less. Iran is a very naturally rich country. Mm. It's got the um, third um, amount of oil reserve in the world and the second in gas. So there's plenty of, you know, money there. It's got uranium, mm. it's got gold and steel. And where is most of that sold, the oil? I think at the moment a lot of it is sold to China and to India. Right. Mostly China. Mm -hmm. And then the money from that usually goes to um, supplying arms to the IRGC and its um, 
subsidiaries. So they have got um, the Courts Force, the QF, which is currently sanctioned by um, Canada, the UK, mm. Germany, because the Courts Force is the arm of the IRGC that commits terrorism crimes in Syria. It's done it in Yemen uh, um, by Hezbollah. So Hezbollah mm. gets supported by that. So, yeah. Right. And of course, Russia. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that uh, closeness of, of relationship with Russia, not between the Iranian people, but between uh, the uh, Tola and the, and the Russian administration, kind of hard to understand, given that the uh, Russian government has no respect for any religion whatsoever. So um, it's, a, it's an odd sort of a, a collaboration, if you like. Here in New Zealand, uh, you've both been very prominent in the uh, organisation of protest uh, to, to, you know, heighten awareness of this. I've got to say the only protest that I've ever attended on the forecourt of Parliament and the whole time I've been in Parliament has been for uh, the two events that have been held there around this issue. So I think you can't look at that uh, footage of, of uh, Massa and um, then come to understand the suppression that's uh, there for uh, people, I'm the father of two daughters, so mm. the idea that they don't would not have a, a life of freedom to choose mm. what they want for their future is just uh, uh, something that I can't get my head around at all. And uh, the question then is, how how much do you think you are going to have to keep up this effort in New Zealand to keep public awareness here of the great struggle that's that's going on? Are we going to stay very, very active and irrespective of what everybody wants to think, we will keep it going because amplifying their voices is quite important and it's quite important to keep their hopes uh, up in Iran. For example, I think you, you, Massa, is the same. We both made our Instagram and Facebook public since we started all this activism here 10, 11 weeks ago and we keep getting messages from Iranians who are obviously watching and they keep saying every time we watch you guys uh, protesting and amplifying our voice it just gives us more hope that we can keep going and we will keep going so we're trying to do it here talk about it as much as we can uh, we try to keep the protests going at least every week or every two weeks and of course we use every opportunity we can to um, by articles by news reports by you know, lobbying politicians, as you're very well aware, to try to keep the momentum going for us and also for our people in Iran, because that's really important. I feel like that's the least we could do. We're not there facing mm. live ammunition and that, and, but, um, and that's the message I mm. get as well. Please don't stop mm. being, raising... Being aware, though, that yes. the Iranian, National, uh, Iranian Republican Guard does have international reach, mm -hmm. yes. uh, how does that leave you feeling? Uh, what does it mean for your personal safety? Well, it's a scary, I must say, because we certainly know they're everywhere and we know some of them, like here in New Zealand, we are aware of who they are and we know they're talking about us on Twitter and different places. But unfortunately, there's nothing we can do at the moment because IRGC is not on the terrorist list yet. Uh, we're really hoping the government would do something about it before the end of the year. Uh, we are worried. Am I worried that we will get assassinated? Probably. But then, on a happier note, I would say if that happens, you know, if I get assassinated, that might make the government act faster in order to stop, you know, further assassinations here. Yeah, it shouldn't quite be as necessary to be as drastic as that. <laughs> we know that Iranians yeah. around the world are getting their threats. Yeah. And um, I know that MI5 has talked about 10 serious threats mm. to 
British nationals, British Iranians and that also work attacks. in London and attacks. Yeah. There's been attacks um, mm. with knives in mm. Germany mm. Um, during protests and in we, London. We, uh, one of my biggest worries is when we have protests and people come and some people come with their family members. Mm. If there is an active attack during a protest, mm. that really worries me. And as someone who you know gets on the mic and is rallying people to come along every week or two. Mm. I worry about that and then I definitely worry about my own children. You know, I'm a professional director. My contact details are in the company's office. Anybody who looks mm. you up or me yeah. could easily find out where we live. Yeah, an officer of the court. Yeah, yes. of course. We always have proper security, Jerry, with us, like paid proper security who have during the power of to, yeah, who have the power to detain. So we all usually have five or six of them just for people's security and safety and they're spread around. And of course, as well as our own security, our own you know, friends, but of course they don't have the power to detain. But just to be safe, we, we try to keep people as safe as possible. Well, you in your protests have uh, two particular asks of the New Zealand government. Do you want to tell us what those are? Um, yeah. I know what they are, but do you, in your words? There were three, three I think. Okay. Yeah, there were three, but the main... One, one of them's pretty, pretty hard. Yeah, I, I know, I know. The main one is adding the Iranian, well, Islamic Revolutionary Guard to the terrorist list. And I'm really appreciative of you, Jerry, calling it Islamic, because the government still calls it Iranian Revolutionary Guard. They're Islamic Revolutionary Guard. So we really want that to be added to the terrorist list as soon as possible, if... if like as soon as possible I mean this year because the threat is real uh, the second request we've had was for the Iranian sanction bill to be passed uh, which I'm pretty sure it's going to have cross-party support and the third request was expelling the ambassador because our Iranians here are highly concerned that he would report back on them to to Iranian government and Iranian regime. So they really want him to be expelled. But uh, the, the, the main request we have at the moment is the IRGC to be added to the terrorist list. That's our main priority. Yeah, and I agree. I think it should mm. be anything yes. that uh, organisation that is uh, associated with others who are already on the list uh, should simply be added to it. When it comes to the uh, Iranian sanctions bill, the reality is that we have very little uh, export arrangements with Iran, True. but it's the people movement that we, we've really got to watch, that some of the uh, less desirables who are part of the regime at the moment, particularly if it starts to sort of look a bit dicey, uh, they'll take their all-gotten gains and try and go anywhere in the world that's a safe haven. And New Zealand would be a soft touch at the moment Absolutely. in that regard. Absolutely. So that needs to be uh, taken care of. Uh, on the uh, issue of the ambassador, well, you know, the government hasn't uh, sent the Russian on his way mm. just yet, uh, so I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. But the other two are very doable, and uh, That's right. uh, we'll certainly be uh, pushing for that to happen. Another thing that the community has been asking us to speak about, which is fairly a new concern, is that we have Iranians here that um, are students. Mm. A lot of them are PhD students, they may need their passports renewed by the Iranian embassy. They have concerns about um, the having to get police clearance from Iran. Again, they'll have to deal with the embassy to get all of that. So we're also concerned for immigration challenges mm. that Iranians will face in the months to come if they have to liaise with the Iranian embassy well, to get any documentation. So certainly be watching that, but it's uh, yeah. another reason why uh, perhaps the, the Iranian ambassador has to stay here for a while longer, so then you can watch that stuff. Yes. But look, um, 
uh, Masa and Samira, this has been a very interesting discussion, uh, very topical, uh, and I think for a country that enjoys the sort of freedoms that we do here mm. in New Zealand, somewhat sobering as well. And I think the other point would be that, uh, you know, your aspirations, the aspirations of your fellow countrymen are no different to the aspirations that we have uh, here in New Zealand. So um, I thank you very much for taking the time to come into the back room of politics and uh, wish you well with the future of the protests. Thank you, thank you so Jerry, much. and we're also very, very appreciative of your support. And thank you very much for the opportunity.